Welcome to Unsung Heroes with Johnny, Daniel, James, and Sam. Our goal is to leave no hero unsung. Welcome to the Unsung Heroes podcast. I'm Johnny and I'm joined here with some friends. We have James. Hello. We have Samuel. Hey, hey. And we have Daniel. Chased. What? What is that? That's Polish. Oh. Again, I like to to foreshadow my episodes with the language that I speak. Wow. (laughs) So guess where today's guy's from? I don't uh, know. Poland? No, Madagascar. No, it is <laughs> Poland. Yes. Ah. Hey, speaking of which, we should do one at Madagascar sometime. If we have a hero from Just there. Somebody from That'd there. Be pretty yeah. cool. Uh, but today we're doing somebody from Poland. His name is Stanislav Zulkiewski. And Duh. I'm not I'm not sure if I pronounce it right. <laughs> I but love it how we have right. to go immediately into a Slavic accent before you say it. Very good. Yeah, yeah your is... your voice has to go down a few octaves. And <laughs> <laughs> where Adidas. but uh just to remind our audience we are doing weekly uploads every monday you can catch the unsung heroes podcast but we are doing shorter episodes 20 or 30 minutes and we're doing uh shorter improv songs at the end so you still want to stick around for that and we are still leaving no hero unsung with that being said i'll go ahead and turn it over to daniel who will be telling us about stanislav Welcome to the Unsung Heroes podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait a minute. (laughs) Got a new host in here. Round two. Today, I want to talk to you guys about this man whom I stumbled upon after researching the infamous Polish winged hussars or hussars or hussars, however you want to say it. (laughs) Let's, Let's land on a pronunciation. What are you guys comfortable with? Hussars, maybe? That's what I've heard a lot of the time, but I've heard it differently as well. The Hussars. Yeah. Hussars. As if we know anything about it. <laughs> well, I, I was trying to look it up, and I, I kept running into a bunch of different variations of it. So I'm just going to say the Hussars. The Polish winged Hussars. If you haven't heard of these guys, they are known to be one of the last like elite cavalry units mm-hmm. in history. And... Mm-hmm. Um, employed mainly during the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth times, which spans from about 1500s to 1800s, roughly. Wow. And so they they were an elite cavalry unit that was known to be very effective and as effective as they could be for this Commonwealth, which, you know, struggled with its own political issues and all that fun stuff. But we're not going to get into that. That's not what this is about. This is about Stanislav Zolkiewski. So I stumbled upon him while reading about the Hussars and reading through some of their battles and some of the most decisive battles. And he came up as one of the very smart leaders. So I wanted to learn more about him. So this is like cavalry that he was a leader of? Yes. Oh, horses. <laughs> yes. Okay. He's he's more like a, a general than. Okay. Yeah. I'll I'll let you I'll let you tell it. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, Stanislav Zulkiewski was born in 1547, and unlike many who would go on to hold his title of spoilers, a general in 
in the Commonwealth. What? He, he became a general? No. <laughs> general. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. <laughs> he actually had no higher education, which you would expect from someone in that title. And he apparently hadn't traveled abroad much at all. Um, but he is said to have been fairly ambitious and wanted to learn on his own. So he studied a lot of history and literature by himself. And he was born into a one of the like houses under some of the coat of arms. So in 1566, so almost right around when he was about 20, he joined the court of King Sigismund II August as an aide to the king's secretary. And he started having some political experience. So he was an aide to the secretary? Yes, he was an aide to the secretary. Ah, to the assistant <laughs> regional secretary. Yes, he's the assistant to the manager. To the <laughs> assist, Yeah. And so uh, in this, you know, he joins the courts. He's getting a lot of political experience. And then the political experience is followed up with military experience. During the Danzig Rebellion, which was a rebellion of a nearby village, he commanded a rota, which is a unit of Polish hussars. And so this starts kind of his military battles and experience of many, many years. So he you know, leads the royal army against many a foe, and he has a lot of these experiences. In 1584, he captures a noble named Samuel Zbarowski, who was later executed by the captors. So this was a huge political move. He got a lot of heat for it, but he did this because he had allied himself with the Zamoski family because the patriarch of the family was his mentor. So mm. he aided them in taking down their rival family. So there's a lot of like kind of Game of Thronesy stuff going on around now. You know, all the the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth is um, very interesting in the way that it was sort of a central power, but it was one of the most decentralized commonwealths in history in a sense right, so a lot right. of the noblemen a lot of the uh, leaders and nobles had extreme autonomy over their own regions and armies and whatnot which is said to be one of the downfalls of the commonwealth later but anyway so one of the biggest moves for him comes in 1588 during the war of Polish succession when Sigismund III and Maximilian III fight each other to try to win the Polish crown so he supported Sigismund and commanded his right flank in the Battle of Bujzina, which was a deciding battle. Um, it was about 6,000 troops on both sides, and Sigismund ended up winning. Um, and he sustains a knee injury here. What kind of knee injury? <laughs> An arrow to the knee. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> but he, he becomes, I don't want to say lame for the remainder of his life. What's a better word? It's pretty lame injured. after that. Really. Sort of crippled, you know, yeah. because of that knee injury for the remainder of his life. But he doesn't give up. He keeps going. And as a result of this victory, he's appointed Field Crown Hetman, which is the third highest ranking military officer in the Commonwealth. And it's third only to the king and then the Grand Crown Hetman. So these Field Crown Hetmans are like generals who are all below one grand general who's over all the generals, and then the king. So he is given this title along with a few castles and lands and whatnot. And ultimately, he sets his eyes on the grand crown hetmanship, and that's what he wants. Hmm. So he fights in many battles, and he keeps on defending the current Polish-Lithuanian commonwealth, as well as seizing new land. So the grand crown hetmanship 
that he wants to get is that's like the second in command right under the king yes that's right okay. under the king so you're pretty much at that point whoever has that title is almost the most powerful man in the area except for the king so it's hmm. kind of like the commander in chief if that power wasn't presiding under the office of president yes, in our case. Right. so he's still over all the armed forces just yeah yeah so the idea is all the field crown hetmans have you know complete autonomy over any battles or whatever they reside over Unless they're, you know, all it's like a big war that they're all involved in, in which case whoever the Grand Crown Hetman is becomes the commanding officer in the area. Hmm. So in 1606, there's a rebellion by the Zebrudovsky, and he sides with the king. This rebellion's against King Sigismund, who he, you know, he was fighting for in the previous right, right. war. But unfortunately, when he's siding with the king, he has to side against his own mentor, Zamoyski. Ooh. Hmm. So it, that's kind of a bummer Betrayal. for him. When I left you, I was but a learner. <laughs> <laughs> now I am the master. <laughs> and what really stinks for him is he doesn't, well, I don't know if this really stinks, but he does. his troops don't even take that much of a part of the battle, the deciding battle, which you could say is good because he doesn't have to fight his mentor. But at the same time, because he doesn't have a pivotal part of it, um, the king doesn't give him the grand crown hetmanship, which he so coveted. Hmm, right. But he continues to do his job because he's a good man. He's a man of duty. You know, he just really sounds like a man of the book kind of thing. You know, just reads, studies and fights and leads really well. <laughs> so one of the biggest battles of his life is called the Battle of Kulishno. And this comes around the time of Russian aggression. So there's a Russian army that's being led by Prince Dmitry Shuisky, and it's heading towards the besieged fortress of Smolensk, which is in Russia. And he's intercepted by Polish forces, so he decides to divide his army into smaller units. He sends an advance force of 8,000 Russian soldiers, and the army that they encounter is about 12,000 Polish soldiers led by... I'm going to take a wild guess. <laughs> Jokiewski. Yeah, <laughs> very nice. Hey, do you, do you know what uh, Russian Tsar this was under? This is under Tsar Vasily IV. Okay, okay, gotcha. Yeah, so the Russian advanced force of about 8,000 run into the Polish that have 12,000. So the Poles try to attack them, but the Russians are in a really good position and they fortify. And, you know, there's 8,000 of them, so it's no joke. So the Polish army encircle them and trap them in the camp. But meanwhile, there is a main Russian force of about 35,000 soldiers that are just a few days away. Oh, man. So uh -oh. what Zhukievsky decides to do is he decides to leave behind a small force of his army to take the larger cut himself and try to go cut off Shuisky himself. So he's kind of leaving a skeleton force to hold down the siege, basically. Exactly. And he's uh -huh. hoping that the Russians don't call his bluff and think that there's still a lot of the force and his tactic works because the trapped Russians just stay put because they don't know that majority of the Polish army has left. Oh, wow. So they just weren't aware of it at all. So they're just, they just don't know. And like they're not able to communicate with Shuisky during this time. So they're, they just have no idea what's going on. Huh. So Zhukievsky's force runs into Shuisky's at night and they both take the nighttime to prepare and so Shuisky, the Russian prince, has about 30,000 Russian troops as well as about 5,000 mercenaries. Zhukievsky himself have, had about 6,500 to 6,800 men. Oh, no. And it's noted that 80% of these soldiers were the Polish-winged hussars. Hmm. So about 5,500 of these are 
elite cavalrymen who are very adept at not only lances and melee, but also at shooting. Mm. So they're invaluable asset to him. So the Russian army decides to place the mercenaries in the right flank, and then they put the main Russian army in the center and left flanks. And their military is mostly consisting of infantrymen, of pikemen, and musketeers. Right. And the Polish army is mostly cavalrymen, although they do have you know, several hundred infantrymen. So these are kind of crazy odds. Were they confident in their ability to take on such a larger force, or were they kind of forced to, out of necessity, to engage the Russians in this case? So in a sense, they have to take him on because you know they can't let this Russian army you know pass. Especially, they can't let him rendezvous with the other one because then right, the odds are right. even worse. But Zhukovsky also sort of is confident in his army and his men, and so they decide to take the battle just before dawn the Man. next morning. The Polish hussars started attacking, and this adds James to their disadvantage because it's a flat field, which you know is nice for cavalry. That's great for cavalry, yeah. Mm. But there is a huge village nearby, so there's like a giant picket fence that runs through the whole field. Oh wow! So the hussars only had very extremely narrow gaps to attack through. Oh, huh. you know, it always intrigues me how a landscape plays such a big role in battles like that. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's something you usually think about when you're like imagining battles and warfare. Yeah, you you just think it's all about the numbers or the people. You never think about the location. And knowing the landscape as well. Oftentimes in like shows and movies when they have these older looking battles between cavalry or infantry, it's like just always in an open field. And they're always intermingling yeah, right. and brushing up against each other in chaos. In reality, yeah. you'd want to maintain your lines, right? Yeah, you get a bunch of people's yeah. beers trying to poke you. Or and it, might be, it might be that <laughs> some people are up on a cliff or like there's a mountain or like in this case, a fence. Right. Yeah, just a fence. It's not just a vast open field. Yeah. Or a river, yeah. for example, will totally halt your advance if you have archers or... You yeah, know, gunmen on you. Yeah, no, like, location's yeah. very important because there's a battle a few years before this where Polish are fighting the Swedish army. And Swedish army is located on top of a hill. But what the Poles do is they keep sending out their, again, winged hussars, who are incredible, to kind of cause a few casualties and come back and attack and come back because they're trying to get them off the hills. Yeah. And the Swedes don't fall for it for the longest time, but then they finally think they have the upper hand and they think the poles are getting exhausted, so they chase, and immediately, you know, the cavalry turns back and collapses on them, and the Swedes fail. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're outnumbered in that battle as well, but not nearly as bad as this one. Right. So the winged hussars, again, they're, you know, they're armored fairly well, and for the most part, they all have muskets and guns, so they're able to charge in, get a few shots off, try to maybe lance a few enemies, and then ride right back. And one of the winged hussars who later wrote about this experience, he said that in that morning alone, that they charged eight or ten times. Man, uh, which mm. when you think about you know going over you know miles and miles and miles and word whether you're going to die or not, it's it's a lot of times. It takes a go. lot of mental yeah. and physical fortitude to charge exactly full yeah. speed ahead into a oncoming force and then regroup, get out, go in again. I mean that that's a ton. Yeah, and to make it worse for them because of the all the fences. And the fact that the Russians have a lot of the infantry and the mercenaries especially had extremely long pole arms and lances, the Hussars aren't able to cause much damage at all. And they keep having to retreat and go back and retreat. So they have to keep their distance and they're not able to really do much. But at this point, 
the sun rises in the east and they look to the hills and Gandalf emerges Gandalf. now. Whoa. <laughs> I was waiting for that moment. <laughs> On the no. third day. <laughs> what happens is Shuisky, the Russian prince, wants to take advantage of the Polish exhaustion. Hmm. Which, if you remember from the Swedes that I just told you about, this was a mistake. Ooh. So what he does is he wants to order a fast counterattack, hoping to, as the Poles are retreating, he wants to strike at the cavalry and then call, and then the Russians just immediately retreat and come back. However, once his cavalry charges in and breaks towards the Polish line, the Polish hussars just turn right around, put away their firearms, and just fight melee. Uh, and fairly soon, the Russian cavalry is completely enclosed within the Polish cavalry, and they're decimated. Ooh, the ooh. Poles just wreck the entire cavalry, and because of this, the right flank of the Poles is able to attack, so the left flank of the Russians starts to break. And again, we keep talking about you know warfare during this time. If you guys know anything about it, once a major chunk or a major flank in the battlefield breaks the rest come very quickly. You know, it's mm. not like a heroic movie where everyone stands. <laughs> the last It doesn't matter <laughs> how many people you lose. No, like as soon as a significant chunk of your army is getting destroyed, everyone just starts running away. I, I was listening to some military historian once who talked about the fact that people theorize that when about even 20, 30% around that range of men are lost on a battlefield, you pretty much surrender. I mean, that obviously varies mm. based on context, but it seems like if you lose a, even a small minority, uh, or maybe a significant minority, I should say, of your troops, you're pretty much broken. And it's very yeah. hard to maintain yourselves unless you have incentive to otherwise maintain the fight going. So it makes sense that once you kind of break, you're pretty much done. Yeah, and I will refer back to that number, actually. But what happens is, as the Russians are getting routed and the flanks are failing, the right flank actually holds really well, but then the Polish cavalry runs them over as well. Um, so the Russians are running back to their own encampment that they've created before the battle, and the mercenaries run into their own, which I thought was interesting that they have their own. I'm no historian, but I'm assuming this was fairly common to where the mercenaries would have their own camp outside of, you know, kind of like the royal army. Mm -hmm. So... The Poles have both camps surrounded, <laughs> and what they do is they go to the mercenaries, and they're like, hey, we will negotiate with you. So this is really interesting about Zolkiewski, uh, kind of like Caesar, honestly. Wait, is it is it Julius Caesar who constantly will kind of like throw the olive branch once he's defeated the enemy and let them negotiate their way out of it. I think to some degree, I think Augustine also fairly often did this. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. for, with Herod, for example, he did that in the first century when, or the first century BC when he kind of gave that as well. Yeah. I think Alexander, Alexander the Great was similar. I mean, he would do that as well fairly often. Yeah, and I feel like what mm -hmm. people don't think about these people is you know, just because they're incredible military men and have armies doesn't mean they just steamroll everyone. Right, yeah. Usually, you know, you fight them and they route back to their city or somewhere and you just say, okay, do you give up? So he gets the mercenaries to agree to never fight for the Russians versus the Polish ever again. Ah. And he allows them to you know, leave safely and go back to their lands. These are Flemish, Dutch, Scots, just people from everywhere. And actually several hundred decide to join the Polish army. <laughs> Negotiations. How are the Polish rates these days, boys? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, it, I mean, like even take someone like Genghis Khan, right? Or Genghis Khan, the great brutal Mongolian warlord. Even he, when he was 
conquesting across the steppe and into Central Asia. He saw the utility of extending mercy. He, he had the strategy where what we'll do is we'll absolutely decimate in the most brutally possible way a city, spread fear into the hearts of everyone around them, and then just offer a, a capitulation offer. Just say, okay, you saw what we did to them. That's what we'll do to you. Now just lay down your arms peacefully. Keep the status quo. We'll let you stay here. You know, adopt some of our customs. We'll let you keep your religion for the most part. That often happens. Sometimes it didn't. Sometimes it did. But that kind of strategy makes a lot of sense when you're trying to, you know, be utilitarian about it, if you will. You know, you want to try to be mm-hmm. conscious of your resources. What what makes most sense? You don't want to, you don't want bloodshed that's unnecessary. Exactly. You know, I, I'd say Genghis Khan probably went way over the top most of the time. But you know, <laughs> it's an interesting idea <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> yeah. So what they do after the mercenaries, they start negotiating with the Russians. And the Russians are allowed to retreat. And as they retreat, what happens is this is a decisive victory in the Polish-Russian War. The seven boyars, the Russian nobles who were extremely powerful at this time, oust Tsar Vasily IV due to the loss of Prince Shuishki. So that's kind of ends the war. Mm-hmm. But the battle, an interesting thing mm-hmm. about it is the main battle, the main part of it where they clash lasts about five hours and the Russians lost about 5,000 soldiers, and Zhulkievsky lost only about 400. Wow. 100 of which were the winged hussars. Man. So this goes back to James, what you said about the percentages, because you know, if you lose 5,000 out of 35, that's 15% people there. of the army. Yeah. So when you look at the number, you think, geez, 5,000 people are a lot. But when you think about 15%, you think, Really? Is that enough to beat a whole army, especially when the other army is already outnumbered by you like three to one? Mm -hmm. But that's all it took. And so because the Tsar is ousted by the seven boyars, Zhulkievsky is able to enter Moscow with a little opposition at this point. So they go to the capital. And the seven boyars who've ousted the Tsar proclaim the Polish prince Vladislav IV as the new Tsar of Russia. Now, what's interesting here is he claims the title, the prince, but he never assumes the throne because his father, the king, isn't able to negotiate a lasting agreement with the boyars. And one thing that's mentioned here is Zhulkievsky's political plan was to have Vladislav, the Polish prince, convert to orthodoxy to gain kind of that popularity and the foothold so that he could actually assume the throne. But because they don't listen to him and they avoid his suggestions, nothing comes of it. And the small Polish garrison left behind in Moscow was later besieged and surrenders within a year. Hmm. So it's really sad because this huge decisive victory kind of goes to waste in a sense. Right, right. Wow. And Zhulkiewski just returns home, starts writing his memoirs, and becomes a tutor to future military leaders. But he doesn't stop there. He, his fame starts to decline um, You know, after the whole, why don't you become an Orthodox thing gets turned down. He proposes raising a large army to deal with the continued threat of uh, the Tatars and the Cossacks, but the parliament doesn't approve it. And he's actually, ironically enough, later faulted for losing against the Tatars as they keep fighting the Poles. And he's like, well, I told you guys we need a bigger army. And he (laughs) signs a major treaty where he relinquishes certain lands to the Ottoman Empire, which again shows... You know, he's not just a battle hardy man. He's Daniel, is that is that happiness I detect in your voice? Is there I, you, I mean the Ottomans <laughs> are pretty savvy. <laughs> You're like, and then he ceded lands to the Ottomans. Nice. He knew we had no choice. <laughs> no, That's but why really, he's my I think, favorite hero. <laughs> I, I feel like it shows something about a leader to be like, you know what? 
we're screwed. <laughs> Let's just sign a treaty of peace and give away some lands. But anyway. I feel like that's why you decided to talk about this guy. So you could throw in the Ottomans. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> this has just been leading up to the Ottomans. Stanislav Zulkiewski, whatever. The Ottoman Empire. <laughs> yeah. So finally in 1618, he is appointed as the Grand Crown Hetman, which is what he has been wanted this whole time. Oh, wow. finally. There we go. So he was thus, for a short period of time, the most powerful individual in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth after the king. And what's incredible is he doesn't reach this through, you know, riches or family or connections, but merely through military achievement and his reputation as an incredible military man. Wow. He earns Mm -hmm. the position truly through merit. And going into his 70s, he continues to fight and be in the military, which is just insane to me. I just can't imagine it. Yeah, like to be in your 70s, I feel like at that point, there's not much battle you can really take part in. Yeah, it's mostly commanding at that point. But even yeah, but even so, like I mean, a lot of a lot of people aren't in the right mind at that age. So it's like <laughs> <I'm> really <laughs> putting our whole army in your hands. It's it really kind of shows where his interests lay, I guess. And his last war is against the again no bias here, but his last war is against the Ottomans in the Polish Ottoman <laughs> oh, War of 1620 to 21, where. They lost, and as they start retreating, there are many like skirmishes throughout the routing, and in the last notable route, he allegedly, legend has it, refuses to retreat in order to stay with the rear guard till the very end, and he is killed. Hmm. And after the battle, this is sort of graphics, so if anyone doesn't like graphic stuff, please close your ears for about 10 seconds. Uh, his head is removed and sent back to Constantinople as a trophy of war. And then his widow actually has to like ransom for his body and for their son, who's actually captured during this war. But anyway. Uh, wow, man. So thus endeth the glorious life of a good military man. What do you wow, think his wow. mem- memoirs would be called? <laughs> the life of Astonislaw. Did he wait? Did he actually write memoirs though? Right, he Can did. You? So one of the memoirs he wrote is called the. Hold on, I'm gonna try to polish my way out of this. Pochtozek i progres vojny Moskievski, which is the beginning and progress of the Muscovy War. Obviously, because he led them against. The that seems Russians. fitting. So yeah. either right? Polish is just so similar to Russian, or your our, our Russian knowledge is coming into our Polish pronunciation because that just sounds so Russian to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Russian. Probably a little so another above. one he writes yeah, probably is, a little <laughs> It's a project called Ochovanyu Zoirnerja Kvarcinego, which is like raising on the raising of the what is this? The Corsine soldiers? Okay, I'm just gonna cut this part out. This is the <laughs> 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 No, can't. you can't <laughs> commit. Uh, anyway. You have to commit. So yeah, he he was an incredible guy, led the Commonwealth to many a victory, and he is now remembered as one of the most famous Polish military commanders in Polish history. Wow, that's, that's pretty awesome. crazy. It's amazing, yeah. man. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. thanks for uh, thanks for sharing about him, Dan. It sounds like a pretty yeah, cool guy. Yes. Yeah. I really wanted to talk about someone from this time period because I love you know warfare and time periods like this. But I know a lot of our audience don't really want to listen to long episodes of this, so. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, uh, we still appreciate it. I mean, it's still really interesting. I, I yeah. love the warfare stuff, too. Well, we don't have time to write a full song, but James can improv one right now. He's got his guitar. What do you I, wrote, I had some ideas. 
Oh, really? I wrote down. I, I wrote down some ideas as you So it's speaking. not truly improv. So I guess in that sense, uh, maybe not. <laughs> I'm gonna beat some Russians Don't care about the Scots, Danes, or Prussians Only foe he didn't beat was Ottomans <laughs> Yeah, Cause yeah. no one could beat them <laughs> Ottomans The Ottomans right. The moral of the story is Don't cross Ottomans. <laughs> <laughs> there we go, guys. We wow. Go. That's wow. definitely not the story here, guys. The story <laughs> yeah, is yeah, yeah. an incredible Polish general or Grand Crown Hetman. Wow. Yep. Yeah, we need yeah, like a disclaimer, like the views expressed by the members do not reflect Fact, the yeah. <laughs> unsung heroes. <laughs> <laughs> well, any any takeaways, guys? Yeah. You know, um, I think we so often forget the... Um, just how cultures have their own heroes. You know, we often get so focused on our own cultures, what's important to us. You know, as a lot of us, you know, most of us here are Americans, but we're kind of taught history and we're always um, emphasizing our heroes from our own context. I think it's cool to kind of see from a different culture who are their kind of home heroes, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I think the unfortunate part is that, you know, as Americans, because we're, you know, such kind of... A, American media and American culture is kind of upfront everywhere. People hear a lot about the American heroes. I don't think it goes the other way around as much. You know, we don't usually as Americans hear about these other heroes from different countries we're not as familiar with. So I think it's great to bring those mm. things to light. And normally when we do hear about them, they're as our enemies. So <laughs> right. We're yeah. just like, <laughs> right. they're well, not heroes. You know, what's funny to me is that... It's, it's, I think all the directors right now who are in their like 50s, 40s, they grew up during like the, the Cold War era particularly. Yeah. So all the villains are Russian, you know, yeah, which is yeah. funny for me. You know, we all grew up in a, a former Soviet Union context. So it was kind of always interesting to me to see all these Western movies coming out. And, you know, my friends would be like, you know, hey, why are the Russians always the bad guys, man? Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's just, that dynamic quite, is always so interesting. Yeah, in I always find it quite funny. But. Yeah. What's well, really cool to me is seeing someone like him who's you know, a quote-unquote Polish hero, but he was during the time of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which the span of it was more than just Poland. Right. So it's really cool to me to see uh, kind of heroes in different countries' histories where you know, it's not really just the Polish that look up to this guy. You know, it could be the Lithuanians. It could right. be anyone who was in what is that empire. So that's really cool to me to see how different countries throughout history, you know, their land has changed, the amount of Mm -hmm. yeah. nations they've ruled mm -hmm. over has changed and how that is so different i guess absolutely yeah yeah cool well uh thanks dan and i think we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up uh so thank you for listening uh to all of our listeners uh, be sure to share this with some friends who you think like this type of history for sure and uh stay tuned for more episodes next monday we'll have another one out uh and um, follow us on Instagram, Unsung Heroes Podcast. You can see some of our announcements, and we'll be posting some of the old songs onto YouTube, and we'll we'll post links on our Instagram to that as well. So you, you're going to want to head over there. Uh, but for now, we will go ahead and see you guys on the next one. Take care, everybody. Right, bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs>